What are you doing out in the snow? It's 32 degrees below zero Celsius and my dad is working hard looking beyond the extents of hypothermia, hypochondria and all the elements combined, he works to build a fence. A true servant, a true worker, a true exhibit of hard work and ethics. This is my father, in whom I am well pleased. Hey, it's me again. Does your job still suck? Are you still mad at your job and therefore life sucking? Then you should join the Bitcoin podcast Slack, where the people there don't suck, or at least their jobs don't. So, in essence, their lives don't either. Join the Slack. Welcome back, everybody. Another interview on the Bitcoin podcast. Today we have Ori Steele from Transmute Industries. The CTO still? Still CTO, still co-founder. Nice. You, were, you were the second show on Hashing It Out. Um, I think Nick uh, Nick from uh, ENS was the first, I believe, and then you. And uh, it's been almost five years now <laughs> since then. So. Yeah. Uh, for those that don't know who you are, quick introduction. Who is Ori Steele? What is Transmute Industries? Cool. Yeah. So I'm, I'm Ori Steele. I'm CTO and co-founder at, at Transmute. Um, my background's in cybersecurity. Uh, originally got introduced to you know cryptography um, in college where my research topic was sort of social network botnets and malware for information warfare. So uh, I've always looked at cybersecurity through the lens of you know digital identity 
Um, and at Transmute, we apply decentralized identifiers and verifiable credentials, which are um, standards of the W3C to solving uh, critical trade um, global global supply chain issues. So I get to use my favorite technologies, you know, applied cryptography, uh, digital identity um, to, to a huge, huge industry. Um, and it's, you know, really exciting work. Um, yeah, that's that's basically what, what we do at Transmute. And I ran, ran back into your name, my happenstance, when um, I had heard about the whole Web5 situation with Jack Dorsey. And yeah. I wanted to see like, well, what the hell is Web5? Like, why, why are people talking about this? Why are people hating on it? How is it built, yep. et cetera? And I start going through the, I guess, foundations of how he plans to build that network or y'all plan to build that network. And I'm looking through standards like specifications and I see your name as a, as a contributor to these things. And I was like, Oh shit, he's been up to things. So that then led to various Twitter things. And here we are. So what the hell is web five? So I don't want to claim any sort of knowledge of, of web five, but I, I worked with Daniel Buckner, who's, who's now part of part of that team for you know, several years. He's a close friend. And um, we worked on a couple specifications together at Decentralized Identity Foundation. One of them is the SideTree protocol, which is the sort of specification that defines the open standard that powers the ION decentralized identifier method, which is built on top of the Bitcoin blockchain. Um, And so as I understand Web5, based on the Twitter threads that I've seen and, uh, you know, late night drinks with Daniel web five is essentially the, the latest sort of imagining of a series of technologies that I know he's been working on for, for some several years, um, focused on giving users better control over their, uh, digital identity and their, you know, claims about themselves, their documents, their personal information, web five, to me, what it means to me is it's giving users kind of control over their identity and their their data. And it's the way that that control is given is by teaching users how to use cryptography to protect themselves and protect their digital identity and, and claim control over things. That's that's how I think of Web5. I'm sure, uh, you know, the folks at, um, at Block uh, probably have a different sort of, you know, view on it. But these core building blocks are actually not not that new. We've been working on decentralized identifiers and uh, the precursors to what are called uh, decentralized web nodes now um, for you know several years uh, at the decentralized identity foundation. Mm. What was that last thing? That last name? The foundation, Ori. So it's the Decentralized Identity Foundation. Um, okay. It's Identity Foundation. They have the coolest domain name. Good name. And I'm it's a, it's really awesome. Now. It's an awesome community. Uh, if you're interested in decentralized identifiers and verifiable credentials, and maybe a little bit of Web three um, or Web five, it's a great uh, community of folks. Um, it's a, a kind of standards in- incubation body. Um, so work that's done there can then graduate to go to uh, you know the W three C or ISO or other sort of foundations. So it's a it's a place where a lot of people who are working on early, early stage technologies kind of come together. Um, different, different startups, you know, different larger companies, um, mm-hmm. all working together on these open standards, open specifications, like filling in the gaps, the things that we all need to build 
the sort of decentralized identity future together. There's like these missing pieces and we all have an interest in having that missing piece, you know, solved. And, and that's one of the things that folks do at DIFF is sort of work together on those missing pieces. Hmm. I have a, I have a question. It might be stupid. What's the difference between your non-digital identity and a digital identity? Man, for some people, there is no difference. I don't know. Mm. Uh, it's a tough question. Um, so I think the first thing to sort of comment on is identity is avoids definition. You know, it's a identity is one of these topics that the more you learn about it, the more you feel like you haven't really learned anything about it. It's sort of it's self-referencing, first of all, which is highly problematic. Um, it means different things to different people in different cultures. Um, th those properties make identity, the term, really hard to sort of work with. I spend most of my time focused on identifiers, which are like labels that point at identity. So like my name is, is Ori. Uh, mm -hmm. that's an, that's an identifier. It's not a very good identifier for me, right? It's not a unique, globally unique identifier and it's not cryptographically verifiable and it doesn't give me any special powers or you any special powers knowing it, but it's an identifier. It points at an identity and there are other people mm -hmm. named Ori out there and Ori as a name points at them just as much as it points at me, especially if it's spelled you know, exactly the same way. Digital identity is it, the way that I like to think about digital identity is it's this collection of all observable and unobservable information about you that exists. So there's, mm. it's like, you know, your Twitter feed, your activity on public uh, social networks, that's publicly observable digital information about you, you know, what you're doing. But then there's, you know, all of the private digital information that exists about you. And you may have, you know, an alias, you know, in, in different communities, you may be part of different groups. And you're, you, when I, when I think about like my digital identity, I think of it as the sum of all of those different places where I'm represented, but I have different identifiers in each of those communities. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so like, I think at the, at the heart of digital identity is sort of giving users a mirror to look at to see how do you how how does your idea of who you are match up with what is publicly observable about you? You know, it's a, it's a way of sort of looking at yourself, in my opinion. The obvious next question to that is why do I need to decentralize that, or right. why do yeah. I need identifiers to yeah. be decentralized that then amalgamate yeah. to make my identity? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I mean, I think. Technology is sort of fundamentally, you know, I like, and it doesn't always work this way. I like to think of technology as being sort of morally neutral and that you could use technology for good or, or evil. And I start this, <laughs> start my response to your question in this way, because identity and identifiers and identifying people has a long sort of cultural history. And if you think about some of the earliest uses of people identification systems, um, they were created as a way of sort of making taxation easier or making business processes easier. And when we have these periods of like very high social turmoil, like during the you know, Second World War, 
those systems that were made for efficient governance to make the uses, you know, to make people's lives easier, they got turned around and they've been misused in, in some cases. And so there's a difference between having an identity and being identified, right? Like there is a desire to identify people to attribute properties to them, to label someone as a criminal in society so that that reputation follows them wherever they go or to label them as an entrepreneur or um, a hero or, you know, these other things, these labels that get attached to these people. And you're not really in control of what labels get associated with you. You know, it, it's the community that decides, you know, if you're going to get canceled on Twitter. It's, it's going to happen. Like you can't stop it. Right. You know, but the thing is that, there are systems of identifiers where there's a central entity that controls that identity. And that entity is really what controls you. It controls the, the access to that identity through their control of the identifier for that identity. So for example, on Twitter, like Twitter usernames, if tomorrow Twitter deletes your account, all of these people that wanted to interact with you can't anymore. And it is a property uh, that can be used for great good if you're like, if you believe that content moderation and human intervention in these systems is a force for good in social media, then you can use that property to protect people, protect communities. But if you're fearful of, you know, groups of people getting together to influence opinion or censor content, that centralization becomes the single point of failure, a great place for an attacker to go choke, to get, you know, basically have their way with that particular technology to accomplish their mission. So by decentralizing identifiers, what we're, we're trying to do is say, this is an identifier for you. You should have control over it. Ideally, you know, no one other than you should be able to really control this identifier. No one should be able to censor it. No one should be able to shut you off, you know, you know, remove your access from the network. And if you think about the spirit of Bitcoin, like how it was created, it was kind of created to solve that kind of problem, but for this sort of, you know, moneyness property. And digital identity, decentralized identifiers are sort of extending some of those properties to apply to user control of their own data. There was a, a, um, a report by Trail of Bits that came out, I think it was earlier today. You probably saw that. Yeah. Yeah. Where it's kind of pointing to the fact that not everything is as decentralized as we thought. And a lot of it was kind of obvious to people who, uh, I guess, work in the space or at least are actively involved. But the degree to which you can decentralize something, and at the end of the day, you're still using pipes that somebody has visibility on messaging. Yeah. Uh, because it's not like, you know, completely encrypted or, you know, um, to what degree is like all of this kind of, are, are we focusing on the wrong thing when we use software to decentralize, you know, things when, when really maybe we need to build alternative, uh, routing solutions? I don't know. And maybe, and I mean, I, th I think, um, so there's like, there's, there's sort of like two different parts to your question. Like one of them is really a question about like, what's the relationship between surveillance 
and decentralization, right? Like, and is it, you know, is it possible to have a decentralized system, but that it's like horribly riddled with surveillance abuse? Like, yeah, that's what the Bitcoin blockchain is basically. Like it's every transactions out there. It's, <laughs> it's like you can, you can look at every transaction and since they're pseudonymous transactions, you might not be able to strongly associate a given you know, wallet address with a given identity. But once that attribution moment occurs, every transaction from that attributed address is now related to that attributed address. So like in the Colonial Pipeline example, like when Colonial Pipeline attack happened, there was a Bitcoin address that was embedded in the malware. And you can see, you know, all of the interactions for that address and anything connected to it is now like, Hey, is that related to the attacker or not? Like you're having that conversation and the public network surveillance property of the Bitcoin blockchain is what creates that inevitable conversation around that. And then the second part of your question is sort of like, sure. Sure. The Bitcoin blockchain may have this strong decentralization property, but all of the gateways that we use to get to it, are on you know the traditional web two infrastructure you know TLS web servers in regions that comply with legal requests all of those kinds of you know the Tor basically in, internet infrastructure right yeah so I think you know I'm I'm a huge fan of you know innovation in the internet infrastructure space like you know I've been following the Tor project for quite some time early you know other projects like ITP I think they're there are excellent use cases for some of those routing technologies, but a lot of the time, if you're building a product, you know, if you're an organization and you're building a product for customers, you may not need that kind of security uh, or privacy protections built into the, the product that you're deploying for your customers. And so there's this sort of like, it's about the operational security of the individual and their threat environment. Like, if you're a really well-known CEO making a product that is completely legally legitimate and offering it to many customers, do you really need Bitcoin or uh, you know Ethereum? Can you just do that with a normal Web2 website? Sure, but then you know maybe only you're going to be taking payments from people that have access to those those sort of channels that way you know. Where you choose the medium is the message. Where you choose to build that product is part of what you're trying to say as a as a sort of business putting forth a product. And I think with respect to like privacy and security, there are a lot of cases where people just look for take me to the you know 11 on the security and privacy dial, and I'm going to build a product in that space. It's like why? Like who's your audience? Yeah, yeah <laughs> like you're excited to work on you know advanced cryptography. That's great, but is the problem that you're solving is the threat environment for that problem really justifying that kind of investment? And would the user experience be better just, you know, running a, a really fast website powered by Amazon, you know, like it's going to work. Do you really need that privacy and security feature? You know, maybe you do in some cases, maybe, maybe you don't in others. Is it so, public? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. go ahead. Is it public domain information in terms of the, frequency of hacks by nation state actors, like for instance, Axie Infinity getting hacked by North Korea, right? I I don't know. And I can't comment on like, you know, specific nation state actor activity. I 
my background, <laughs> I used to look at that, that kind of those reports like a lot more than I, I do these days. Um, generally in cybersecurity, this process of attribution, everyone is sort of cautious to say, hey, I know for sure that's a, a nation state actor. We, we have you know, threat actor groups and we sort of attribute the threat actor group to a particular region or operation, that kind of thing. And usually there's really good reasons for making that kind of attribution. Um, you, you just want to be very careful about reading too much into that because many people know how to use a VPN these days. For sure. Those are pretty well done. Uh, now that you've mentioned it's like you should use the right technology for the right operational environment. Why it's like, how does ion work and why is that useful for people? So that's like, so for those that are not familiar with kind of the web three stack, like the whole, in my opinion, or how I've viewed things so far is not everything needs to be built on a blockchain and yeah. web five's opinion, web five's opinion of why they made it web five and not a continuation of web three is that they feel like most everything in web three is built on a blockchain or focused on that. Um, and so like there is a portion of the entire system that leverages a blockchain for a specific reason. And that's the identity part, as I understand it. And that's done yeah. through a system called ion. Can you explain that? Sure. So there, there is a property that blockchains have that is desirable um, with respect to identity. Um, so ion as a system is, is actually not that complicated. You can think of it like, Basically, users control keys that represent their identity, and they sign messages updating the state of their, their identity document. So I created my new digital identity on ION, and I'm going to use my key to add a new uh, you know, public-private key pair to that identity. I'm, I'm just adding the public key, right? I'm going to use the private key to prove that I am that identity in the future. And over time, I might you know, rotate my keys. Every time I perform an operation in that system, I have to sign a message. And so the problem becomes one of how do I know what order in which to apply these messages to validate my latest sort of state of my identity? And this is what um, Ion uses the Bitcoin blockchain for, which is like, you know, it's all sort of hilarious to think about it as just a way of ordering messages. That's a, I mean, I think one of the things mentioned in the original white paper is that it is a really good timestamping server. Right. So it's, it's giving you very, very high confidence after, you know, a brief period of the frayed rope at the end of the chain that messages will be in this order. Right. So if you ignore chain reorgs and it's pretty safe to do that, as long as you're, you know, so, you know, some number of blocks away from the head. Right. The confidence that messages will be interpreted in a specific order is incredibly high and nobody can change it. And what that means for you as an as a identifier controller is that everyone will interpret your latest state of keys the same way. So when I add a key and then, you know, 20 minutes goes by with extremely high confidence, when you check to see what are my latest keys, you will get the same answer that I intended for you to get. And the interesting part about ION and, and using Bitcoin as a way of sort of providing that kind of information is you could run a Bitcoin node and an IPFS node yourself. 
I could run a Bitcoin and IPFS node myself. I can anchor my identity on my node. You can resolve my identity on your node. And that network surveillance problem that we were talking about before, where like the attacker looks at the public internet pipes to see what's going on. Guess what? There's just you syncing your Bitcoin and IPFS nodes. They can see that syncing, but they don't know that you're accessing my particular identifier. So some of the metadata analysis that we use to de-anonymize, you know, activity in, in these sort of scenarios is harder to, it's harder to apply to systems like Bit, like ION um, because node operators can use their local view of this, this sort of identifier space to ask questions like, what's the most authoritative key for this particular identifier at this point in time? And that's going to be a local only operation that they're going to be able to figure that out. Um, and you won't have this sort of like, oh, I can see that someone's resolving a particular identifier uh, on the network. Yeah, let me give you an example of like uh, secure solutions that give you that type of information. And I'm not going to say this is exactly what happens with Signal, but it is a part of um, centralized run chat services that in order for you to establish a connection with someone, you need to do what's called a key exchange, which means I need to get material from the other person or like, an identifier of that person, if you will, right. from somewhere. Yep. And then I do a I do a cryptographic protocol to establish a secure channel so that we can send encrypted messages back and forth to each other. Once I establish that, I have really high confidence that no one knows what I'm saying to the other person. Yeah. Um, you, you if you don't drop those messages, then you can at least see that two people are talking. But that mere asking for the initial key information or, or identifier information is information in itself, which says these two people care to talk to each other. That's right. And that's yeah. and so what you just, what you just described in the process of running the Bitcoin blockchain locally and getting that information without anyone being able to tell that I'm getting it removes that type of situation altogether. Yeah. I mean, I, I, obviously what users are doing in, in the real world matters a lot. Like, you have to really be resolving identifiers off of infrastructure that you yourself are running locally, you know, in order to get that property. Like, you know, for example, if you build a service on top of an Infura for Ethereum, which is, you know, a, a thing I use all the time, the logs from you accessing Infura reveal some of those questions that you're, you're interested in, in asking. And for like, again, depending on your operational sort of security or threat environment, what you're trying to build, Building on top of Infura might make a lot more sense than running your own Ethereum or Bitcoin nodes, right? Like you might prefer to connect to a gateway that is highly available, scalable, secured by engineers. Who's, that's their full-time job. There's lots of reasons to build on that kind of architecture. But there are privacy issues that come from building on top of that kind of architecture. And in my opinion, Web5 sort of like leaning into imagining a future where some of those privacy issues are maybe no longer a part of the fundamentals of using the web. That was, um, I, I've been reading a lot about um, content surrounding Tim Berners-Lee, Tim Berners-Lee's initial concept of how he intended the, the internet to have developed before it seems to have been kind of privatized. Um, yeah. I, and that's so part I, of it. 
I work at the W3C with a whole bunch of other companies, you know, including, you know, Microsoft and Apple and Google and Mozilla. And, and the W3C is sort of standard organization that was created to steward the evolution of the web. So, you know, early work on HTML, CSS, um, and now, you know, verifiable credentials and decentralized identifiers. And the spirit of, I think Tim Berners-Lee, his, his vision for what the web was has been preserved within the W3C in a, in a couple communities stronger than, than in, a, in other places. Um, and one of those communities is this sort of semantic web community, which, uh, which is a, an entire rabbit hole. I mean, you, you, could, you could very easily get lost as you sort of dive deeper into what does the semantic web mean. But if you look at the Wikipedia definition for the sort of what is the semantic web, it's the idea that the internet should be this sort of accessible database where you can kind of crawl the internet, you can ask questions of it, and you get answers. And it's all powered by uh, people who host websites putting extra effort into how they structure content so that services can make use of that structured content more efficiently. And that same idea is like is is definitely embodied in the vision behind you know decentralized web nodes and some of the web five sort of pieces. It's it's that idea, but instead of sort of all of that data being controlled by web hosts, right, or location-based sort of servers, it's the idea that users control that data and users should be able to, you should still be able to build some of those semantic web sort of crawlable experiences, but under decentralized infrastructure and at the discretion and under the control of data, data controllers who are using cryptography to sort of make their the rights clear. Yeah, I saw the solid project and I have no idea how like data is like I guess hidden. I I, I yeah, it's I'm it's not, interesting though. Yeah, I'm not really an expert on on solid, but uh, solid it has a lot of similarities to decentralized web nodes and some of the web5 ideas. They're like the idea that you you'd run a service that would make your information available to others that you would be in control of it. I think the specific choices and technologies to, to build that experience are a little bit different, um, but there are a lot of sort of similarities in the vision there. I think that's that's a, that's a good sign. Like I, I like to see competition in an emerging technology space. It's showing that the idea is sound. It's worth going after. So one of the uh, the, the initial story arc, I'd say, of hashing it out as we kind of change it up and move everything over to it is trying to understand that narrative of like, when, like I, you've been around for long enough, the original vision or uh, narrative of Bitcoin was like one CPU, one vote and everyone running things themselves. And you've just described that same vision on how to restructure internet, ar internet architecture. I'm curious as to your opinion on whether or not we can actually get there because of the way the internet is structured in terms of the, the pipes, the series of tubes that we currently <laughs> use to move information around. Like, is it feasible for people to run something at home and have the requisite uptime and bandwidth to participate in the internet this way? Yeah. And, and at what cost, right? Like, you know, there's a cost to decentralization. A lot of 
decentralization purists like to think that this is like basically free, you know, like we're yep. going to get all of these privacy and security properties and it's going to be free. Like it's photography <laughs> gets us a lot of way there. It helps a lot, <laughs> but, yeah. but it, it costs, you know, it, it costs it's complex, it's complexity, right? It's power consumption, it's hardware costs, you know, in some cases, if you, you know, if you, really go down that route. And then the hardware and the power consumption pieces kind of go together. So I, I think you asked is like, is web five, like feasible, is this kind of scalable decentralized internet idea feasible? And I think, you know, there's an awesome thread uh, Matt Green was involved in, you know, was in response to this uh, letter signed um, from like 26 reputable people in, in the technology security space and they were objecting to blockchains. Bruce Schneier's in there, Kelsey Hightower. So awesome, you know, Twitter thread about um, essentially the, you know, one of the arguments used against blockchain is that it's just fundamentally it doesn't scale. And I, I think there's two pieces, um, there's sort of two pieces, two solutions to that problem that he gives, which I agree with which Matt Green gives, which I agree with, which are, it it scales in one sense by the fragmentation of the networks that we've seen. So Bitcoin may have been the first, but like there's a lot of blockchains now. So there's some scalability that comes from just making a new Bitcoin clone and moving some amount of the traffic into that new network. And then the other piece, uh, you know, other place where we see sort of scalability is these layer two solutions. And, and that's actually what ION is. Ion is a layer two sort of scaling solution built on top of Bitcoin. I, I think these are engineering problems. Like engineers love scalability problems. Uh, I'm fairly confident that scalability will continue to improve, but will it improve to support all use cases that you can imagine on the internet? Like maybe not. Like there could be some set of use cases for internet behavior that are fundamentally unachievable in a way that is properly respectful of users and their privacy. Another good example of this kind of thing is large language models. Like if you're following, you know, the, the Dale, Dale, Dale 2 sort of drama on Twitter, all these people using these new really large machine learning models to create interesting text or interesting images. All of that was trained off of the ability to surveil the public internet. They pulled down a whole bunch of data and they train those models off of all of that data. You could never have built a model like that if you didn't have access to all of that information. And in a Web5 world where users are sort of granting you access, maybe those kinds of products aren't even possible to build anymore. And that that's sort of a sad thing. Like I think, you know, GPT-3 and, and Dale, like these are really awesome AI systems. And I think it's important that there, there's important work that's happening there. I don't think everything needs to be in the same, in the same internet. Like there's a thing that folks at the W3 say, say this a lot. They, they say like, there's only one web. I think it's a lie. I think there are many webs. It's called the internet for a reason. It's about a connection of separate entities. I think, there's a lot of value in using the right tool for the right job. And I don't think everything needs to be, it's sort of the same thing I said before, like 
You don't need to solve all problems with privacy and security turned up to 11. Your, your solution space for that kind of problem is like really unfortunately constrained if you're starting your, your problem solving by doing that. You're very reasonable. I like that. Do <laughs> <laughs> you think he was going to be a zealot? <laughs> I mean, some people are, you know, some people like, like the, true, yeah. the Bitcoin podcast, you know, a range of folks. And it's just nice to like hear, you know, level-headed kind of conclusions. Um, yeah, it's nice. I appreciate it. Awesome. Well, it's, yeah, yeah, it's been super, super fun to, to be on to chat with you all. I love talking about what's going on in the space. I think it's, you know, an extremely exciting time. I mean, I know we were, we were joking, you know, before the show about crypto winter coming, but I get really excited during these periods in the natural market cycle. Um, and it doesn't matter whether you're, you know, in the cryptography, you know, decentralized identity blockchain space, or you're just looking at normal market behavior, you know, in the, in the global market that we have. These different periods of market activity, they create different incentives. People are brought together to focus on the problems that matter the most. And when everything's going well, like, yeah, it's exciting. And there's, there's a good feeling that kind of comes along with, with, you know, the bull market. But I actually really like the things that happen when the, you know, things get tough. Like I like hard problems. I like the challenge. I like when people are forced to work together because they have no choice and they've got to do it to survive. Like that's like, there's something sort of really human about that experience of like, Oh man, like winter is here. Did we make enough food? You know, will we be able to feed each other through this winter? Like we're social creatures. And like the thing that's you know awesome about the cryptography community is that like we're all here to support each other. And that support matters a lot more during these periods than it does when everything's going well. So let me ask I, you this question. I'm just do you show the people who work for you the financials of the company? Like, we are going to die if we don't, you know, <laughs> get to this milestone. Yeah, we we don't we don't share uh, financials unfiltered, but we do share sort of general sort of perspectives. And this is the thing, you know, the transmute was born um, in TechStars at Austin. And I've been through Techstars twice, actually. This is my sort of second second company, you know, founding the company and going through Techstars. And Techstars is a really awesome community, and they have some really great advice for founders regarding communicating around financials. And I think that there's an important... It, it, it depends on your company and your culture. Like, I don't think there's a one-size-sort-of-fits-all solution to this. But I think that... Honesty and transparency are very, very healthy in some environments. And there's other cases where the people, uh, it's a quote that I'm going to totally, you know, fail at here. It's, it's from the, the, the show, The Orville. And it's about um, apologies. And, and this, I think the same sort of applies to sort of overly sharing regarding some of these sort of positionings. Like the people who matter don't care and the the people who care are going to do you know you have to be you, you basically you have to be careful about how people are going to uh use that kind of information it's the same thing that happens on twitter like 
there's political or religious views that you could share in an open world. And the only people who are going to respond are going to create an experience for you that you're not really, that's maybe not really what you wanted. The assholes so think, are always the loudest. Yeah, I, I guess that's probably a much faster way of getting to the point, right? Like, <laughs> I, I think, I mean, in, when I was in college, when I was like getting into cybersecurity, I had tremendous anxiety about this exact problem. Like, how do you communicate honestly about vulnerability without getting wrecked? Mm, yeah, it's like Especially it, like a white hat or something. Yeah, so. <laughs> like yeah, like if you're like, let's say you're a white hat hacker and you find a problem and you report it, and the language that you use ticked off the guy on the other end, and you're in a lawsuit now. This happens in the security, you know, community, and it's it's really unfortunate. So you have to be careful about how you communicate and what what you're going to say. But I think. It, and I, I should also say this, like my company works on decentralized identifiers and verifiable credentials. And I, we play around with and experiment with, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum technologies. But that's not really like we're not, a, we're not a fintech company. We're not. That's not really our space. And so like a lot of these natural market cycles, we are, you know, as a community, just sort of like watching them happen. And it's not really directly affecting us. Uh, we aren't, we're not like, you know, highly sensitive to really drastic price fluctuations. And I know there are companies in the space out there that are, and that this time can be particularly, you know, emotionally draining. It can be tough to have those conversations. Like I've seen some comments from folks on Twitter. I'm not going to name in case they're, you know, they don't want to be named, but they're what I appreciated the way that they sort of communicated that this is like a tough time for some folks and that you should be careful about, you know, gonna make jokes about the price crash like be careful making those jokes if you're not sure how someone's gonna hear them you know what i mean i think you have to be careful about what you're saying and how it's gonna be heard it's a it's a thing you know i definitely struggled with in my career like communicating effectively saying what needs to be said but in a way that is not going to hurt someone's feelings but also communicate the truth and what needs to change Corey's good at that why I like with him. Ruthless sometimes. <laughs> I mean, but yeah, I try to be uh, acceptable, minimize damage. It's a, it's a minimization of damage. Yeah. Um, what was I going to say? I, that, that, that sidetracked me. Because uh, I kind of like this conversation as well. How much time do you have? I'm good. <laughs> I, I can keep going. I have cool. uh, a pair programming session later. We do pair programming at the company where, you know, two engineers sit down and code together and I can run That's over cool. it a little bit. Um, it's one of my favorite parts of working at the company though, just like sitting down with engineers and coding together. Oh, nice. I was going to say, um, as someone who kind of views the more entrenched cryptocurrency community from the outside, um, I'd imagine watching people get through the bear market and continue to work gives you a good idea on who's actually trying to work, who sticks around and who's trying to build something for, I guess, uh, with good motivation. Yeah. I, I, I do like that aspect. You know, it's, you see the people who show up when, you know, things are tough, you know, I feel commonality you know with them and i have i think there's a sort of bond that you get when you 
keep showing up and you survive one of these cycles and you don't have it sort of like, you know, emotionally drain you or like alter your character, you know, in some way that is going to be kind of, I think you have to be careful, you know, during these times, like to remember that like this space and social media are like, not what's really important like life and like living and being with your family and, you know, those are the important parts and people get like really stuck thinking about work or technology and then social media like traps you in that mindset of like, oh, like I can see that every every tick is just like another, you know, knife in my in my side, you know, as you're watching the market or the social media sort of scenario change. And I think it's just important to remember that like, it's like not really that important. Like it's you and being alive and being happy. Those are the important things, you know. So wholesome it's so true though like, <laughs> it's, like it's, so, it's so hard because if you're as addicted it's to easy to get trapped up in especially yeah. when prices are high and you're you can see like a bright future ahead of you and all kinds of <laughs> you, things and that's ripped identity, away because you didn't act accordingly yeah and you, you you could have a situation where your identity got really tied up in bitcoin doing well right and then like bitcoin's not doing well like your identity is destroyed like your family's like, like how about that bitcoin now bro yeah, and you're, you're like, you know, it's like yeah. it's important to remain detached from some of those things. I think it's fun to get attached to it, also, but I think you just have to be kind of careful about that. I definitely Gambling addiction have is a problem. Waxing and waning of, of family members communicating with me. <laughs> they, do they reach out more when, when things are going poorly? They're like, "How are you doing? Are you okay?" It depends on how much they reached out during that particular bull cycle. Yeah. And they like, what should I buy, bro? Oh, oh my God. Or like, should I sell it now? Is it, is it bad? It's like, I don't know. Did you need the money in the first place? Yeah. <laughs> you probably shouldn't have put it there. The DMs. You know, we've, we've definitely tried to preach. And I think preach is the right word uh, at the Bitcoin podcast. Like this concept of, we call it HODL plus, which is when you have, like when, when what you've put in allows you to make inc- like actionable benefit in your real life you should take it out and use it. It's it's like when you can put yourself in a situation where you drastically reduce your responsibilities and future burden, if you don't do that, that's irresponsible. Yeah. I uh, Nothing I've said on this call should be considered legal or, or financial advice um, at, at all, or even some disclaimers. It's just all yeah. of the disclaimers. We're good with know? everything. Yeah. Like, but I, I, I think... Um, I, one of the things I like about crypto Twitter in quotes is, is the sort of like community sort of like amateur approach to, you know, technical analysis, trading, like it's playful. Like there's a huge amount of danger in playing with that kind of thing. But at the same time, there's a lot of really great learning. You know, what starts as sort of you joking with your friends, maybe eventually ends with you having a basic understanding of, financial market behaviors and indicators that is meaningful in some way. I think play is really important. And in really mission critical industries like finance or security, it can feel uncomfortable to play. You could be like, I don't want to play because I don't want to lose money or because I don't want to get hacked or, you know, whatever. And I think to be creative in this space, you have to, you have to find a way to play safely in those environments that, and you should be clear that you're playing and you should, you know, make sure that you're, you know, 
complying with all laws in your appropriate legal jurisdictions, et cetera. Well, I, I think it's important to place like usable decentralized identities. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is one of the reasons why I love testnet so much because you know the the Ethereum testnet is like a great place for you to play around and it's public information, so you should be careful about like what information you put out there. But at the same time, like there are things that I've done on the testnet regarding decentralized identifiers and you know verifiable credentials and like soul bound tokens and NFTs, like just experiments that I would be terrified to do on the mainnet, but I like have really no, no anxiety, you know, playing around, trying to see if I can make something work, build a thing. And it's, if you're operating just on the test net, it is really fun. And there's a lot less anxiety around it. And just make sure you don't reuse any of those keys for anything else ever. Oh yeah. (laughs) I agree. We're using faucet keys from test nets. Uh, Yeah. It's a part, and, and like in a continuation of that, something that I found that I like, I remember saying this in the ICO phase in 2017, early 2018. Um, if everything goes to shit, like we have created a very large group of young people who have started to think about how to allocate their money that works best for them, which is like, a financial way of thinking that you're not taught anywhere else that people who are more wealthy tend to think the same way. And I thought that was incredibly important for that type of play. I mean, it, it was like it had consequences, but people were actively thinking about how do I reallocate my money or crypto tokens to make the most value for myself and had an actively allocating these things. That was a real lesson too, which you don't yeah. get, right? It's like, it went away, but I can do it again. And so like, like these, these types of lessons are incredibly, incredible life lessons that allow you to kind of start to think about value and portfolio allocations and where to put things that are most efficient for yourself that you don't get anywhere else. And like, it's kind yeah. of play because it felt like poker chips at the, at the time. And yeah. if you didn't take it out, it basically was. So <laughs> like, I don't know. Yeah. Like, I, I, I thought that was interesting too, is at least teaching people those lessons and starting to make them think in that, in that manner at a very young age. Yeah. I, I think it's, you know, uh, honestly, like being, you know, in the real world, like the evolution of these technologies, it's completely an experiment. Like, we didn't really, I think no one could have imagined what releasing technology that allowed for programmable incentives based on the human attraction to moneyness properties would really, like no nobody could have imagined how that would evolve, even when you're looking at the first Bitcoin paper or the academic literature that exists in the space, you know, prior to that, you know, behavioral psychologists looking at, you know, there's coin experiments with monkeys and, you know, there was, you know, things that came before Bitcoin that had centralization properties that were challenging and where that centralization property is the reason you've never heard of those things because they were destroyed immediately because it was very easy to kill. Like it's in technology and the internet is a sort of very much an uncontrolled experiment. And there's a part of that that's just beautiful to look at. Like it is like walking through the forest and finding a weird flower and it is true that if you touch that flower or you eat it, the weird things might happen to you. They might be great or they might be really bad. <laughs> and 
if you're if you're really scared, like don't touch the flower. But I think there's really nothing wrong with looking at it and being like, wow, that's awesome. That's beautiful. Like I never imagined a flower like that. Some of the more adventurous humans will will go ahead and try it and then other humans will watch them to see what happens. <laughs> and you know, that's I feel like I like I spend we you know, I spend so much time online. I feel like the internet is my community of people like you know early humans that probably had a sense of you know tribal belonging and for me the tribe is like you guys like people on the internet that i'm probably never going to meet in real life and we still have that social communication we still have this connection you know but you know fundamentally we are the same sort of biological structure that we were back when we were you know first deciding we're going to stop moving around and start building huts. It's an interesting way to wrap up. I like that. Is there any, is there anything you would have liked us to ask you that we didn't? It's a great question for any podcast. Um, <laughs> I, I think uh, the main thing I'd like to sort of share, uh, well, I, I wish you would have asked me more about verifiable credentials to answer your question in the way that you asked it. Because I think we talked a lot about identity and we didn't talk a lot about verifiable credentials. Can you tell me about verifiable credentials? <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> Verifiable credentials are a technology that you see paired with decentralized identifiers a lot, but they actually are an independent thing. And they're about claims that an issuer makes about a subject where an issuer could be a person, an organization, or a device. The subject could be a person or an organization or a device or an asset or a product. Um, and they're really like, they're, I think they're really strongly aligned with the way Tim Berners-Lee thought about information at the early stages of the web. This idea that like I can describe to you some product or something and I can sign my description of this thing. And then everyone who sees this signed description can understand it in the same way. That's like really, really an important building block. And you see them, you know, applied to use cases like, you know, digital driver's licenses and, you know, permanent resident cards, these sort of like human credential identity use cases. But a lot of the, in my opinion, the really exciting work is these business use cases for this kind of thing, business documents, because businesses, you know, they operate on a lot, a lot of businesses are still operating on paper documents. And for a lot of companies that are sort of investing in digital transformation, there's an opportunity to leap, straight over, you know, moving from paper to PDF, they can move from paper to verifiable credentials and they can have that sort of API integration moment, but with all of these cryptography benefits that have become available as the, the sort of enterprise security landscape has evolved over time. So I think like verifiable credentials are a really important building block of, you know, human-centered identity, but also like organization or government-oriented identities, like identities that are applying to entities that are not people, or maybe they're devices, those kinds of use cases, I think, you know, verifiable credentials are incredibly exciting technology. And it's definitely a standard, you know, I spend a tremendous amount of time in. Where should someone go to learn more about that? Uh, so there's um, that you can go to the, the W3C uh, verifiable credentials um, standard, the technical recommendation. 
And uh, there is a working group that's formed that develops those standards and specifications. And if you're a member of the W3C, you can sign the you know, IPR agreements and join that working group and contribute. And you can also join the W3C community group. Uh, which is uh, a little bit easier to join and uh, open to everyone. And a lot of those these technologies were incubated in that community group or, or at the Decentralized Identity Foundation um, before they became standards at the W3C. And uh, one final um, link, I think I've got it here, but um, this is one of the uh, community group work items that I work on with a number of other folks applying verifiable credentials to these global supply chain use cases. So turning those paper documents associated with imports and exports into verifiable credentials. That's sexy. Nice. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, like, sexy. <laughs> it's a nerd sexy. <laughs> it, it is. It's a, uh, it's, you know, supply chain is a very, very old um, industry, but it's, it's, so incredibly important. Um, Would you say you're transmuting that paper into? Oh that? man, yeah, <laughs> you are. It, it's true. I'm. I'm glad you said it, and I didn't have to. Um, yeah, we're. We are. That, that's actually. That is the reason we named the company um, that way. We we wanted to apply some of this sort of newer cryptography that was being used in the space. We wanted to give that capability to businesses so that they could leverage some of the same same security benefits that early adopters of Bitcoin were already taking advantage of. Awesome. Good name then. Appropriate. Well, awesome. Thanks for coming on. Definitely good talking to you and uh, we'll see you on the internets. Awesome. Thanks.